Thank you for being here this afternoon. My name is Art Azurdia. Um, I've been in the pastoral ministry now for 36 years, been married and been in the pastoral ministry right about the same time. For the last 13 or so, I've been on the faculty at Western Seminary full-time for the first five, and if you've had any experience teaching in a seminary, you quickly discover that just about any boob on the planet can be a seminary professor. And so after about two or three of those years, I was pulling my hair out, desperate to get back into pastoral ministry. And so about seven years ago, we planted a church in Portland. So I teach a little bit at the doctoral level at the seminary now, but really my heart and soul is bound up with a church that we began, Trinity Church. And uh, so if you're ever in Portland, please come and visit us. We also started a ministry there, oh, about 12 years ago called the Spurgeon Fellowship. We have a group of about 300 pastors that meet four times a year just to talk about pastoral ministry and the challenges related to that. So I love pastors. Pastors have got to be the strangest group of people on the planet with all kinds of weird pathologies and idiosyncrasies. But I can't help the fact that I do, I do really love them and care about them. And part of what I want to talk to you about today relates something that I think is probably a challenge for all of us. I'd be surprised if it was never a challenge for you. Guys, I expect that what I will do is spend maybe about 45 minutes talking uh, with you about this passage in John 3. If you want to turn there, feel the freedom to do that. And then when that's finished, if we have some time left over, and I'll take my cue from the gentleman in the back, I'd love to have you push back, ask questions. You can disagree with me. Whatever you want to do, um, we can learn from each other until he tells us that our time is up, all right? John chapter 3, I'd like to look at a paragraph that begins in verse 22. At the crack of dawn on Easter Sunday, April 19, 1987, I hopped out of bed that morning brimming with all of the enthusiasm and excitement of an anxious child on a Christmas morning. It had been nine arduous months of planning and praying, nine months of community surveys and research data and team building. But finally the day had arrived, the very first Sunday of a new congregation that would come to be Christ Community Church. All told, we were seven families strong, but we had invited everyone we knew. If you've ever church planted, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Relatives, friends, neighbors, ex-wives, family pets, <laughs> anything with a pulse we invited to come be with us on that day. The only qualifier was that they were breathing. And uh, in preparation for that day, we had actually hand-addressed, hand-stamped, and mailed 29,000 letters of invitation to every home in the surrounding area. One of the most vivid memories I have of that particular Sunday was getting up early in the morning and finding an unexpected greeting card on our kitchen table. It was addressed to me. So I picked it up, opened the flap, slid out an Easter card that was imprinted with a typical Easter sentiment. Underneath that sentiment, however, were these handwritten words from my wife. No matter what happens, these are exciting days. I will never regret coming here, and no one is prouder of you than me. I love you, Lori. I thought to myself, how sweet, how nice. No matter what happens. 
And then I thought for a minute, no matter what happens, <laughs> no matter what happens, what in the world does she think is going to happen? And at the end of the day, brother, in writing those words, she spoke better than she knew. For the prior five years, I had been the college pastor at a church of about 1,500 people, the very church where I had been converted and never left. And of course, I was aware of the fact that there were other churches around, smaller churches, but I had come to believe that we were the size we were because, quite frankly, we were doing it right. Not that anyone had ever said that. Those were dots that I just connected in my own mind. Well, the first Sunday of this new church came and went, and then the first month, with all of our invitees visiting on those initial Sundays to wish us well, all of which meant that at least for a while, our attendance was a bit inflated. After about two months, as the newness began to fade, the reality of who we were became clear, and I mean by that the reality of our numbers. I had never seen a church so small. And frankly, I had no idea what to do about it. My training had not in any way prepared me for it. Over the next few months, I became increasingly frustrated. Finally, I found myself at a complete loss, and then it got even worse. The frustration turned into shame and embarrassment. Why? Because my way of thinking about success had come back to bite me in the backside. You see, when you reason the way I had reasoned earlier, we're this big because we're doing it right, the inescapable conclusion when the numbers are small is that you must be pastorally incompetent. And that was precisely how I felt. One particular Sunday morning, a few minutes before the service, I was actually waiting in a little room behind the pulpit area. But I suppose I shouldn't say waiting. I was hiding because, <laughs> because that's precisely what it was. Things had gotten so bad for me that I would hide there until the start of the service because I couldn't bear to see how few people were coming in. I couldn't stand the rebuke. A few minutes before 10, Lori came looking for me. When she found me, she could see the dread on my face. What's wrong? She asked. I said, I just can't go out there today. I can't do it. I am so ashamed. She put her arm around me and said, let me pray for you. I don't remember what she prayed but I can tell you that when she prayed, the burden was gone. It really was. I went out, led the service, preached. We had a good day. It was a wonderful deliverance that Lord's Day morning, but not a permanent one, not by a long shot. I remember that Sunday so clearly because it was the day I realized I've got a huge problem. It is potentially incapacitating, and it is deeper and uglier than I can even begin to conceive. I am an idolater in the biting words of William James, bowing down to the goddess of success. And what a tyrannizing 
deity she is. She will rob you of sleep. She will steal away your joy, distort your thinking, cripple you with envy and ingratitude and hate, all the while rebuking you with the lash of your own incompetence. I want you to be free of it. Free from that soul-consuming disease of an unsanctified ambition. A lust, brothers. A lust, not for sex, not for money, not for alcohol. The lust to succeed as a minister and the self-glory that accompanies it. So what I would like to do is give our attention to this dark side of ministerial ambition. The residual effect of an unsanctified pastoral lust. To state it most clearly, I want us to talk to you. I want to talk to you this hour about this business of jealousy and jealousy as it relates to the work of ministry. You know what I'm talking about? Is it safe for me to assume or is it just my issue? It's that ugly sensation you feel when another pastor's apparent success so clearly outstrips your own. Another in the same town, another in the same district, another in the same denomination or fellowship of churches. And of course, as you well know, brothers, it is as old as the book of Genesis, right? Cain kills Abel. Why? He is jealous. God had regard for Abel's sacrifice and not his. There was Aaron and Miriam. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? It was ministerial jealousy that God had granted to Moses a scope of influence that exceeded theirs. And then there was Korah, who said to Moses and Aaron, All in the congregation are holy, every one of them. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? How come we don't get to be priests? It was ministerial jealousy. It was ministerial jealousy, as you well know, that brought about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Remember the Sanhedrin? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Haddon Robinson once said to me, you can take away a man's money, you can take away a man's woman, but don't you dare begin to attempt to take away a man's power. And the Jewish religious leaders proved it. Jealous for their ministerial power, jealous for their ministerial influence and position. It was so obvious that even Pilate the pagan recognized it. For Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered Jesus up. Have you experienced it? Ministerial jealousy, pastoral envy. It seems, in the words of Shakespeare, that the green-eyed monster has come to church, and it makes you feel dirty, doesn't it? It makes you feel filthy, that you would burn with resentment for a brother who experiences the blessing of God in pastoral success. It's like an acid rain that burns holes through your heart. So let me ask you the question that will shape our time together. How can you crucify ministerial jealousy when another's apparent success so clearly outstrips your own. Let me give that to you again. How can you crucify ministerial jealousy when another's apparent success so clearly outstrips your own? It's the issue, brothers, that now confronts us in this text that is before us. Let's pick it up in about verse 22, shall we? 
After this, that is to say, after Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, chapter 2, after his subsequent interview with Nicodemus, the original Nick at night, chapter 3, after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them. In other words, they moved from the urban area of Judea into the rural area of Judea for a period of time, perhaps, in which Jesus and his newly gathered disciples might get to know one another better. And, John writes, he third person singular, he baptized. Now we know from chapter four that Jesus didn't actually himself baptized, but the point is they were modeling their ministry after the ministry of John the Baptist. I don't think this is Christian baptism in the full post-resurrection sense. I, I, I think that's impossible, obviously, but a baptism that is mirroring the ministry of John the Baptist. In other words, a baptism of repentance, We know that the initial preaching of Jesus imitated that of John the Baptist. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It may very well be that the symbol of that repentance was retained as well, at least for a season. Verse 23, now John also was baptizing at an on near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. I find it interesting that John doesn't pack up and go home when Jesus finally appears on the scene. There he is. There he is. The one the Old Testament told us about. I'm done. I'm finished. God had called him to bear witness to the Messiah. And as long as there was life in his body, he would do that very thing. God had called him. God would have to stop him. And he did finally, as you well know, by the decree of Herod Antipas. But this had not yet occurred, verse 24 tells us, which results then, you see, in this competition of ministries. Two popular figures carrying out a nearly identical ministry in the very same neighborhood. I mean, it it seems a little too close, don't you think? Certainly one of them should have set up the store a little further down the road. Verse 25, now, or better yet, therefore, in other words, as a consequence of these simultaneous and very similar ministries operating in close proximity, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. If you have an ESV at this point, the ESV, frankly, is a little too genteel because the word here doesn't merely speak of a discussion. It carries the notion of an argument, a forceful difference of opinion that looks to attack rather than seeking a solution. And beyond all of that, the Greek text indicates that it was the disciples of John the Baptist who picked the fight to begin with. So what's going on? Well, brothers, admittedly, we're not given all the details we might like, but my guess is it probably went down something like this. You got baptized by Jesus? Jesus himself was baptized by our guy. 
It was our guy who gave Jesus his start after all. So, I mean, if you want to talk about sheer purifying power, if you want to talk about the efficacy to cleanse, well, you can claim the cheap imitation, but John's baptism, it's the original. It's the real deal. Good point. But then the Jewish man says, purifying power? Cleansing efficacy? I don't know. People are always debating theology. But I can tell you this. In terms of sheer numbers, there Jesus has you beat. And this poor guy, he doesn't realize it. He's just said the one unspeakable thing. He's just poured salt in the wound. And the reaction of John's disciples, it tells you everything you didn't want to know. Verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Can you believe the audacity of this guy? You gave him his start, for goodness sake. His ministry was birthed out of yours, and now he's even co-opted your ministry methodology, <laughs> baptism. <laughs> now, guys, can you read between the lines? They're attempting to make Jesus inferior to John by showing his indebtedness to John. He owes you. But of course, the root cause of all of this is the corrosive sin of ministerial jealousy as evidenced in two of the features that distinguish what they say. Notice, firstly, the impersonal way they refer to Jesus. Did you catch it? Verse 26. <clears throat> they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man, that man, they know who Jesus is. In fact, they had been introduced to Jesus by John himself. But you see, guys, this is what jealousy does. You so resent the blessing of God on another brother that you can't bring yourself to display even the slightest bit of warmth. I mean, if you stop to talk to him for any length of time, you'll have to acknowledge the blessing of God on his life with a kind of hypocritical happiness, pepsodent smile. They won't even refer to Jesus by name. Secondly, did you notice their hyperbole? Their exaggerated claim, verse 26? That man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about? Look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Is their assessment accurate? Look back up at verse 23. Now John also was baptizing at an on near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. Actually, the idea in the original here is 
people were continually coming and being baptized. So that quite apart from the success of Jesus, the ministry of John the Baptist hasn't abated in the slightest. Attendance is up, giving is up, and yet all are going to him. Jealousy is the great exaggerator. And here it reveals their irrationality. It is so distorted their thinking, they are no longer able to recognize and enjoy the fruitfulness that still marks their own ministry. You've been to pastor's conferences. You've been at denominational conventions. Listen carefully, brothers, to the conversations that take place in the hallways and in the hotel rooms. Listen to the conversations that take place over the meals. On the one hand, jealousy over those who are doing well. On the other hand, scarcely concealed delight in those who are not. They are the two sides of the same wicked coin. And now, as you would expect, John the Baptist comes at this thing head on. How can you crucify ministerial jealousy when another's apparent success so clearly outstrips your own? Firstly, recognize that any expression of success is the exclusive prerogative of God. Recognize that any expression of success is the exclusive prerogative of God. Verse 27, to this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. Here, heaven being a circumlocution for God. A person can only have what God has given to them. Now, dear brothers, I want you to listen to me here now very carefully. The absolute sovereignty of God is not a piece of theological lumber that you can afford to live without. Not if you are serious in terms of enduring in the work of pastoral ministry. This is no theological abstraction. This is no ivory tower irrelevance. This is a soft pillow for a weary head. How does Paul persevere through all the sufferings of gospel ministry? 2 Timothy 3, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. You hear the sovereignty? How does Jesus comfort Paul in the face of Jewish hostility in Corinth? Paul, who's clearly afraid. Jesus says, do not be afraid. It's a present imperative with a negative. It means to stop an action that's already in process. The idea is, stop being afraid, but go on speaking, for I have many in this city who are my people. You hear the sovereignty? How does Jesus explain to his disciples the abandonment of 5,000 people who at least initially seemed so enthusiastic? He says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. You hear the sovereignty? How does Jesus face the injustice and suffering foisted upon him by Pontius Pilate? You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. You hear the sovereignty? 
And in like manner, brothers, how do you begin to put to death the soul-corrupting disease of ministerial jealousy? You recognize that divine sovereignty stands behind all true ministerial success. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. It was, some of you will understand what I mean when I say this, it really was an utter schizophrenia that distinguished my early days of pastoral ministry. I professed theologically to be an Augustinian. I carried out the practice of my ministry like a Pelagian, which means I took pride in my apparent success, and I groveled in shame at its apparent lack, assuming in either case that the results were owing directly and finally to me. And yet the Apostle Paul says in a discussion of ministry, what do you have that you did not receive? It's not to say, brothers, that you ought not to work hard. We ought to be the hardest working people in our congregation. And I mean that. Nor is it to say that uh, we shouldn't appropriate the God-appointed means by which gospel success occurs. It is to say that in keeping with your faithfulness and at times in spite of it, any expression of success in ministry is the exclusive prerogative of God. What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, watch now, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos water. Sovereignty does not deny ministerial responsibility. But God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Do we really believe that? You believe that? Then why do we often sell our souls for ministry methodologies that virtually deny it? bouncing around to the latest and greatest thing, on board with the latest fad. Listen to what Peter says. You've read it a million times. I wonder if you've yet to really hear it. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not yet lording it over those allotted to your charge. These people have been allotted to me, assigned to me, distributed to me. Who does the distributing? It's a divine passive. The implication is God is the distributor, which means in the final analysis, I don't determine the size of my church. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. And so John is saying, if Jesus' ministry is expanding and if my ministry is decreasing, then God is doing it. And for me to pine away in discontent would not only reveal jealousy, far worse, it would reveal a lack of satisfaction with God and the desire to usurp his place. Brothers, I can't think of any better way of saying it than this. Dissatisfaction with the sovereignty of God is not the mark of a sanctified mind. 
Dissatisfaction with the sovereignty of God is not the mark of a sanctified mind. We chase after growth like an old junkie on the hunt for a fix. But you understand the frenetic pursuit reveals our pathology. It's time for you to understand that any growth you produce by means other than those that have been ordained will prove spurious. Moreover, like a drug, to keep satisfied the people you manage to collect in your own power, there will need to be greater and more powerful doses of the same because whatever you catch people with, you keep them with. You keep them with music, then you better keep the music going. You keep them with drama, you better keep cranking it out. Whatever you catch them with, you keep them with. You catch people with deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus, then you will keep people with more of the same, the gospel. If you catch people with the promise of life enhancement, then you better come to terms with the old law of diminishing returns that today's enthusiasm becomes tomorrow's bore. I mean, who even knows who evil can evil is anymore? Some of you who are old as I am, maybe. Some of these young guys here have no clue. Right? He's at a county fair. He rides his motorcycle, jumps over one pickup truck, everybody claps, yay for evil Knievel. Guess what? One truck would never be enough anymore. Two trucks, five trucks, ten trucks, eight Greyhound buses, 15 Mack trucks, 25 buses, Snake River Canyon. Uh, Where's evil Knievel? And you see, we subject our ministries to that very same thing. How can you crucify ministerial jealousy when another's apparent success so clearly outstrips your own? Firstly, brothers, recognize that every expression of success is the exclusive prerogative of God. Secondly, Recognize that ultimate satisfaction comes in uniting people intimately to Jesus Christ. Ultimate satisfaction comes in intimately uniting people to Jesus Christ. In those moments, my dear brothers, when carnality is not getting the better of me, and the lust for Growth and an unsanctified ambition are dormant more than anything else I can tell you here with a clear conscience. It is the salvation and sanctification of people that is the source of my greatest joy. It's why I went into the ministry. And it's my guess for those of you who are here today. It's why you went into the ministry. It's why you've lived with all of the sacrifices. It's why you went into debt to get theological training. It's why your family lives on a fraction of what you might earn in the secular marketplace. For a good number of you, it's the reason why you work a second job. That when the smog of everything selfish is blown away, including that ministerial jealousy by the reviving winds of the Spirit, you can recognize it inside of yourself. That deep-seated passion to see men and women and boys and girls intimately united to Jesus. Now sometimes you lose sight of it, especially when you're trying to build a big church for all the wrong reasons. But it's there. 
And it's the very thing now to which John appeals as he addresses these jealous disciples. Verse 28, look at it. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. Could anyone have missed this? Could anyone ever accuse John the Baptist of being subtle? Vague, nuanced. I'm not the Messiah. I'm only here to point you to him. I mean, he was about as subtle as a Mack truck. But these men clearly have not listened. Why? Have you ever been a part of a rapidly growing ministry? You ever lived in that dynamic? We're living in one right now in Portland, and it won't last forever. But if you've ever been a part of something like this, when your church happens to be the flavor of the month, when yours is the ministry that everybody is buzzing about and flocking to, it can be intoxicating, exciting. But as a pastor, you see, you need to learn that you can't be inebriated by the numbers of people. People often say, nothing succeeds like success. There is truth to this. What it means for ministry, however, is that many people will seek to identify with your church precisely because you are perceived successful. They are not with you for the reasons you want them to be with you, but because your ministry is the latest and greatest and coolest thing. But what, happened, what happens when the bigger and better show emerges down the street? The real reason these people came to you become obvious. Now, for a brief time, John the Baptist was the best thing going, better than anything these people had seen in 400 years. But now there's a competitor. And with the crowds flocking to him, these disciples begin to panic. Why? Because they were vicarious men. Their identity bound up with John and his success. You see, guys, the problem isn't with John the Baptist. And set it in our own context. I mean, you could think about the first century with what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, Apollos, Kephas, whoever. Uh, in our own day. John MacArthur, John Piper, Alistair Beck, Tim Keller. The problem is not with them. The problem is with their groupies. The problem is not with John the Baptist. The problem is with his groupies. Were they truly concerned for the advancement of the kingdom of God? Was their ultimate satisfaction bound up with people being connected to Jesus? Were they really, truly concerned for the reputation of John the Baptist? Only insofar as his success spilled over onto them. It's why they never really heard him. He was as clear as a fire alarm in a monastery. <laughs> but they were listening through filtered ears. So now he draws upon an image they can all identify with and understand. Verse 29. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. 
The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. John says the difference between Jesus and me is the difference between the bridegroom and the best man. And they all knew exactly what that meant in that culture. Three things unique to the best man in a first century Judean wedding. One, the friend of the bridegroom was to assume full responsibility for arranging the details of the ceremony. Two, he was forever barred from marrying the bride. Three, following the ceremony, he would escort the bride to the groom and stand and keep watch outside the bridal chamber and listen for the, quote, bridegroom's voice. And if, I would, if you would allow me to quote Joachim Yeremias from Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, quote, it is the call of the bridegroom from the bridal chamber for the friend who customarily fetches the sign of virginity. You can read about that very thing in Deuteronomy chapter 22. The point is the friend of the bridegroom finds his greatest joy in the bridegroom's joy. His joy in discovering that his wife, this woman who had reserved herself entirely for this moment, had become altogether and in every way his. And so John says to his men, for you to tell me, even in exaggerated terms, that all are going to him, that joy is mine. And it is now complete. This is what I've lived for uniting people intimately to Jesus Christ, even if it means losing my ministry. Is this the goal and joy of your ministry, brothers? Is it the aim of your preaching? The real ambition of your heart? Are you ready to lose people to Jesus Christ? Or have you stepped into the role of the bridegroom and adulterously sought something that is not yours, an allegiance that is the exclusive domain of Jesus Christ? Our church in California was very near Travis Air Force Base. And what this meant for us as a congregation is that about every three years, over about a two or three week period, we would lose a third of our congregation forever transferred to other parts of the world, you see. And during those earlier years that I mentioned before, I really struggled because rather than seeing it for what it was, you see, that we were training people who would go to other places with the gospel and serve as elders and deacons and teachers and leaders, all I could see is we're down by a third, down by a third, down by a third. My problem was that I was a ministerial interloper, an intruder who had encroached upon the intimacy reserved exclusively for the bridegroom. I'd lost sight of the fact that the bride belongs to Jesus, that she does not exist as a platform for my reputation or to flatter my ego. And joy became a stranger. Has it happened to you? 
Oh, it's not, brothers. I know, I know. It's not that you set out to be idolatrous. I know that. It was your sole passion to connect people to Jesus Christ. But as time passed, it became increasingly difficult to answer the question, "Ah, so how many people you got in your church? How many people you got going there now? And especially is this the case in America where a man's competency is determined exclusively by bodies, bucks, and buildings. You can be as immoral as they come, but if you've got bodies, bucks, and buildings, everybody's going to applaud. Well, you see, when you struggle like that, you may not have realized it at the time, but you've been bitten by the vampire of ministerial ambition with the result that the pure joy you once knew uniting people to Jesus was now infected with an unholy, self-serving virus running through your veins. The passion to build a church, which of course is the unique and exclusive function of Jesus himself. How can you crucify ministerial jealousy when another's apparent success so clearly outstrips your own? Recognize that any expression of success is the exclusive prerogative of God. Recognize that ultimate satisfaction comes in uniting people intimately to Jesus Christ. Finally, recognize that the increasing preeminence of Jesus Christ has been irresistibly predetermined. Recognize that the increasing preeminence of Jesus Christ has been irresistibly predetermined. Verse 30, he must become greater. I must become less. In my view, it is the single most important phrase that could ever fall from the lips of a gospel minister. Jesus must keep on continually increasing. I must keep on continually decreasing. But my dear brothers, I submit to you, there is so much here than most of you realize. For John, this is not just a statement of personal humility. It is a programmatic declaration. He is speaking about a pivot point in all of redemptive history. Don't forget who John the Baptist is. He himself is the object of prophetic revelation. He is the Old Testament forerunner, the unique friend of the bridegroom. So yes, he's a minister and you're a minister. Wonderful, but you're not a minister in the same way that he was a minister. There is, after all, only one best man. What I'm saying is, The Old Testament age of promise swings into the messianic age of fulfillment on the axis of John the Baptist. And in that vein, he is saying, I and everything I represent am fading into oblivion, yielding to the greater glory of the Messiah and the age he inaugurates. In this sense, he must keep on continually increasing I must keep on continually decreasing. You and I could never make this claim to be the one uniquely ordained to serve as the hinge that pivots us from the old epoch into the new. And you see, brothers, this is exactly what Jesus means in that 
passage that perhaps is a bit perplexing to you when he says, Matthew 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. But that question begs another, that comment begs a question, and that is greater in what way? Greater than anybody born of women? Greater in what way? Greater in um, miraculous power. That is greater than the likes of Moses and Elijah, but John performed no miracle. Greater in revelatory insight, that is greater than the likes of Isaiah and Jeremiah, but John wrote no scripture. Greater than all others, greater than all others, you realize what this means, greater than Abraham, greater than Noah, greater than David? Greater how? Greater in the sense that he is able to point to the Messiah with an immediacy like no one ever before. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And then Jesus adds, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Are you in the kingdom of heaven then in what sense are you greater than John the Baptist and thus greater than every other Old Testament saint? Your greatness in comparison to John's turns on the same axis as his in comparison to all who preceded him. He was able to say, there he is, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Can you imagine that privilege, brothers, huh? David couldn't say that. Abraham couldn't say that. Moses couldn't say that. Only John the Baptist could say that. But even then, you understand, only he could say it predictively. We who now live on this side of the cross and the resurrection, we have seen what John on his best day could only predict in anticipation. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, seated at the Father's right hand as the universal sovereign. For you as a minister of the gospel, the ever-increasing exaltation of Jesus Christ is no mere prophetic expectation. It is a redemptive reality. You are greater than John the Baptist in that you can declare the conquest of Jesus in a way that John never could. And therefore, by implication... If you have witnessed even greater expressions of Christ's preeminence than John, how much more should you be willing to keep on continually decreasing in the eyes of those allotted to your care? By the way, one last little tidbit here. You see that little word must in verse 30? Look at it. It's one of John's favorite words. In fact, in chapter 3 alone, he uses it three times. Look back at chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus says to Nicodemus, You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. Verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, and then right here in verse 30, he must become greater, I must become less. This is a word, my dear brothers, that conveys the idea of predetermination, foreordination. 
Do you realize that the ever-increasing exaltation of Jesus Christ is a divine purpose that is unstoppable? irresistible, inexorable. The devil himself can do nothing to prevent it. So do yourself a favor. Stop competing with the sovereign, foreordained purpose of God by seeking to use your ministry as a means of flattering your ego. I mean, of all things, ministerial jealousy has got to be the most irrational and illogical emotion to which a human being could fall prey. Why? The ever-increasing preeminence of Jesus Christ has been irresistibly predetermined. You can't stop it. To him every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is kurios to the glory of God the Father. And brothers, once you embrace this and it owns you, you will never again find yourself paralyzed by jealousy when you discover that Christ's preeminence is being displayed at the church down the street. You'll rejoice, not resent. Now this, you see, is at the heart of Christian success. Your willingness to surrender any and every external manifestation of personal achievement, if doing so will ensure the greater glory of Jesus Christ.